Book Two, Chapter Six of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nastasia S. Arachne by George Ebers, translated by Mary J. Safford. Book Two, Chapter Six. Hermon rose from his couch the next morning, alert and ready for new pleasures. He had scarcely left the bath when envoys from the Ephebi and the younger artists invited him to the festivities which they had arranged in his honor. He joyously accepted, and also promised messengers from many of Archias's friends, who wished to have the famous blind sculptor amongst their guests, to be present at their banquets. He still felt as if he were intoxicated, and found neither the disposition nor time for quiet reflection. His great strength, fettered, as it were, by his loss of sight, now also began to stir. Fate itself withheld him from the labor which he loved, yet in return it offered him a wealth of varying pleasure, whose stimulating power he had learned the day before. He still relished the drought from the beaker of homage proffered by his fellow-citizens, nay, it seemed as if it could not lose its sweetness for a long time. He joined the ladies before noon, and his newly awakened feeling of joy beamed upon them scarcely less radiantly than yesterday. Though Thion might wonder that a man pursued by Nemesis could allow himself to be borne along so thoughtlessly by the stream of pleasure, Daphne certainly did not grudge him the feastal season which, when it had passed, could never return to the blind artist. When it was over, he would yearn for the quiet happiness at her side, which gazed at him like the calm eyes of the woman he loved. With her he would cast anger for the remainder of his life, but first must come the period when he enjoyed the compensation now awarded to him for such severe sufferings. His heart was full of joy as he greeted Daphne and the Lady Thion, whom he found with her, but his warm description of the happy emotion which had overpowered him at the abundant honors lavished upon him was interrupted by Archias. In his usual quick, brisk manner, he asked whether Hermon wished to occupy the beautiful villa with a magnificent garden on Lake Mariotis, inherited from Myrtilus, which could scarcely be reached in a vehicle from the Berchium in less than an hour, or the house situated in the centre of the city, and Hermon promptly decided in favour of the latter. His uncle, and probably the ladies also, had expected the contrary. Their silence showed this plainly enough, and Hermon therefore added in a tone of explanation that latter the villa would perhaps suit his condition better, but now he thought it would be a mistake to retire to the quiet which half the city was conspiring to disturb. No one contradicted him, and he left the woman's apartment with a slight feeling of vexation which, however, was soon jested away by the gay friends who sought him. When he removed to the city house the next day, he had not yet found time for a serious talk with Daphne. His uncle, who had managed the estate of Myrtilus, and wished to give Hermon an account of his inheritance, was refused by the blind artist, who assured him that he knew Archias had greatly increased rather than diminished his property, and thanked him sincerely and warmly. In the convenient and spacious city house, the young sculptor very soon thought he had good reason to be satisfied with his choice. 
Most of his friends were busy artists, and what loss of time every visit to the remote villa would have imposed upon them, what haste he himself would have been obliged to use to reach home from the bath, where he often spent many hours, from the wrestling school, from the meetings of fashionable people in the Panium Gardens, and at sunset by the seashore on the royal highway in the Bruchium. All these places were very far from the villa. It would have required whole hours, too, to reach a famous cook-shop in the Canopus, at whose table he liked to assemble beloved guests or revel with his friends. The theatre, the odium, most of the public buildings, as well as the houses of his best friends, and especially the beautiful Glycera, were easily reached from his city home, and, among the temples, that of Demeter, which he often visited to pray, offer sacrifices, and rejoice in the power of attraction which his statue of the goddess exerted upon the multitude. It stood at the back of the cella, in a place accessible to the priesthood alone, visible only through the open doors, upon a pedestal which his fellow artists pronounced rather too high. Yet his offer to have it made smaller was not accepted, because had it been lower, the devout supplicants who stood there to pray could not have raised their eyes to it. It was not only at the festivals of the dead that he went to the Greek cemetery, where he had had a magnificent monument erected for his dead mother. If his head ached after a nocturnal carouse, or the disagreeable alarming chill stole over him, which he had felt for the first time when he falsely answered Thion, that he was still under the ban of Nemesis, he went to the family monuments, supplied them with gifts, had sacrifices offered to the souls of the beloved dead, and in this way sometimes regained a portion of his lost peace of mind. The banquet in the evening always dispelled whatever still oppressed him on his return home from these visits, for, though months had elapsed since his brilliant reception, he was still numbered, especially in artist circles, with the most honored men. He, the blind man, no longer stood in any one's way. Conversation gained energy and meaning through the vivacity of his fervid intellect, which seemed actually deepened by his blindness when questions concerning art were at issue, and from a modest fellow-struggler he had become a patron bestowing orders. The sculptor Sotellus, who had followed his footsteps since the apprenticeship in Rhodes, was instructed with the erection of the monument to Myrtilus in Tennis, and another highly gifted young sculptor, who pursued his former course with the execution of the one to his mother. From a third he ordered a large new mixing vessel of chased silver for the society of Phoebe, whose members had lauded him at the magnificent festival given in his honor with genuine youthful fervor. In the designs for these works his rich and bold gift of invention and the power of his imagination proved their full value, and even his older fellow artists followed him with sincere admiration when, in spite of his darkened eyes, he brought before them distinctly, and often even with a charcoal or wax tablet in his hand, what he had in mind. What magnificent things might not this man have created had he retained his sight? What masterpieces might not have been expected? And his former works, which had been condemned as unlovely, offensive, and exaggerated, were now loudly admired. Nay, the furious meands struggling on the ground, and the street boy eating figs, which were no longer his property, 
were sold at high prices. No meeting of artists was complete without Hermann, and the great self-possession which success and wealth bestowed, besides his remarkable talent and the energy peculiar to him, soon aided him to great influence among the members of his profession. Nay, he would speedily have reached the head of their leaders, had not the passionate impetuosity of his warlike nature led the more cautious to seek to restrain the powerful enthusiast. Archias's wealthy friends had no such apprehension. To them, the lauded blind artist was not much more than a costly dish certain to please their guests. Yet this, too, was no trifle in social circles which spent small fortunes for a rare fish. At the banquets of these princes of commerce he often met Daphne, still more frequently the beautiful Glycera, whose husband, an old ship-owner of regal wealth, was pleased to see famous men harnessed to his young wife's chariot of victory. Hermann's heart had little to do with the flirtation to which Glycera encouraged him at every new meeting, and the Thracian Althea only served to train his intellect to sharp debates. But in this matter he so admirably fulfilled her desire to attract attention that she more than once pointed out to the queen, her relative, the remarkably handsome blind man whose acquaintance she had made on a night of mad revel during the last Dionysia but one. Althea even thought it necessary to win him, in whom she saw the future son-in-law of the wealthy Archias. For though the Graminatius Proclus, the merchant, had been persuaded to advance the king's wife hundreds of talents, and Arsinoe cherished plans which threatened to consume other large sums. Thyron watched Hermon's conduct with increasing indignation, while Daphne perceived that these women had no more power to estrange her lover from her than the Bettys and Beauties, who were never absent from the artist's festivals. How totally different was his intercourse with her! His love and respect were hers alone, yet she saw in him a soul-sick man, and persistently rejected Philotas, who owed her with the same zeal as before, and the other suitors who were striving to win the wealthy heiress. She had confessed her feelings to her father, her best friend, and persuaded him to have patience a little longer, and wait for the change which he himself expected in his nephew. This had not been difficult, for Archias loved Hermon in spite of the many anxieties he had caused him, as if he were his own son, and, knowing his daughter, he was aware that she could be happy with the man who possessed her heart, though he was deprived of sight. The fame which Hermon had won by great genius and ability had gratified him more than he expressed, and he could not contradict Daphne when she asserted that, in spite of the aimless life of pleasure to which he devoted himself, he had remained the kind-hearted, noble man he had always been. In fact, he used, unasked and secretly, a considerable portion of his large revenues to relieve the distress of the poor and suffering. Archias learned this as the steward of his nephew's property, and when, to do good, he made new demands upon him. He gladly fulfilled them. Only he constantly admonished the blind man to think of his own severe sufferings and his cure. Daphne did the same, and he willingly obeyed her advice, for, loudly and recklessly as he pursued pleasure in social circles, he showed himself tenderly devoted to her when he found her alone in her father's house. Then, as in better days, he opened his heart to her naturally and modestly, and, though he refrained from vows of love, 
he showed her that he did not cease to seek with her, and her alone, what his noisy pleasures denied. Then he also found the old tone of affection, and of late he came more frequently, and what he confided to no one else implied to her, at least by hints. Satiety and dissatisfaction were beginning to appear, and what he had attempted to do for the cure of his eyes had hitherto been futile. The remedies of the oculists, to whom he had been directed by Daphne herself, had proved ineffectual. The great physician, Aristostratus, from whom he first sought help, had refrained, at her entreaty and her father's, from refusing to aid him, but indignantly sent him away when he persisted in the declaration that it would be impossible for him to remain for months secluded from all society and subsist for weeks on scanty fare. He would submit even to that, he assured Daphne, after she represented to him what he was losing by such lack of resignation, when the time of rest had come for which he longed, but from which many things still withheld him. Yesterday the king had invited him to the palace for the first time, and to decline such an honor was impossible. In fact, he had long wished for this summons, because he had been informed that no representative of the sovereign had been present at his reception. Only his wife, Arsinoe, had honored him by a wreath and congratulations. This lack of interest on the part of the king had wounded him, and the absence of an invitation from the royal connoisseur had cast a shadow into the midst of many a mirthful hour. He had doubtless been aware what great and important affairs of state were claiming the conscientious sovereign just at this time, and how almost unbearable his restless, unloving spouse was rendering his domestic life. Yet Hermon thought Ptolemy might have spared a short time for an event in the art life of the city, as his Demeter had been called hundreds of times. Now the long-desired command to appear before the sovereign had finally reached him, and, in the secure belief that it would bring fresh recognition and rare honors, he entered the royal palace. Proculus, who neglected no opportunity of serving the nephew of the rich man whose aid he constantly required for the queen's finances, was his guide, and described the decoration of the inner apartments of the royal residence. Their unostentatious simplicity showed the refined taste of their royal occupant. There was no lack of marble and other rare kinds of stone, and the numerous bas-reliefs which covered the walls like the most tapestry were worthy of special attention. In the oblong apartment through which the blind man was guided, these marble pictures represented in magnificent work scenes from the campaigns in which Ptolemy, the king's father, had participated as Alexander's general. Others showed Athene, Apollo, the Muses, and Hermes, surrounded or hastening toward the throne of the same monarch, and others again, Greek poets and philosophers. Magnificent colored mosaic pictures covered the floor, and many flat specks above door and windows, but gold and silver had been sparingly used. Masterpieces of painting and sculpture were the ornaments of the room. In the antechamber, where Hermon, awaiting for the king, Proclus mentioned one of the finest statues of Alexander by Lysippus, and an exquisite eros by Praxiteles. The period of waiting, however, became so long to the spoiled artist that he anticipated the monarch's appearance with painful discomfort, and the result of the few minutes which Ptolemy II devoted to his reception was far behind the hopes he had fixed upon them. 
In former days he had often seen the narrow-shouldered man of barely medium height who, to secure his own safety, had had two brothers killed and sent another into exile, but now ruled Egypt shrewdly and prudently, and developed the prosperity of Alexandria with equal energy and foresight. Now, for the first time, Hermon heard him speak. He could not deny that his voice was unusually pleasant in tone, yet it unmistakably issued from the lips of a sufferer. The brief questions with which he recited the blind artist were kindly, and as natural as though addressing an equal, and even remark made in connection with Hermon's answers revealed a very quick and keen intellect. He had seen the Demeter, and praised the conception of the goddess because it corresponded with her nature. The sanctity which, as it were, pervaded the figure of the divine woman pleased him, because it made the supplicants in the temple feel that they were in the presence of a being who was elevated far above them in superhuman majesty. True, he added, your Demeter is by no means a powerful helper in time of need. She is a goddess such as Epicurus imagines the immortals. Without interfering with human destiny, she stands above it in sublime grandeur and typical dignity. You belong, if I see correctly, to the Epicureans? No, replied Hermon. Like my lord and king, I, too, number myself among the pupils of the wise Stratton. Indeed? asked Ptolemy in a drawling tone, at the same time casting a glance of astonishment at the blind man's powerful figure and well-informed intellectual face. Then he went on eagerly, I shall scarcely be wrong in the inference that you, the creator of the fig-eater, had experienced a far-reaching mental change before your unfortunate loss of sight? I had to struggle hard, replied Hermon, but I probably owe the success of the Demeter to the circumstance that I found a model whose mind and nature correspond with those of the goddess to a rare degree. The monarch shook his fair head, and protested in a tone of positive superior knowledge, as to the model, however well selected it may be, it was not well chosen for this work, far less for you. I have watched your battle against beauty in behalf of truth, and rejoiced, though I often saw you and your little band of young disciples shoot behind the mark. You brought something new, whose foundation seemed to me sound, on which further additions might be erected. When the excrescences fell off, this Hamon, his shadow, Sotilus, who follow him will perhaps open new paths to the declining art which is constantly going back to former days. Our time will become the point of departure of a new art. But for the very reason, let me confess it, I regret to see you fall back from your bold advance. You now claim for your work that it cleaves strictly to nature, because the model is taken from life itself. It does not become me to doubt this, yet the stamp of divinity which your Demeter bears is found in no mortal woman. This is certainly no departure from the truth, for the ideal often deserves this lofty name better than anything the visible world offers to the eye. But hitherto you have done honour to another truth. If I comprehend your art aright, its essence is opposed to the addition of superhuman dignity and beauty, with which you, or the model you use, strove to ennoble and deify your Demeter. Admirably, as you succeeded in doing so, it forces your work out of the sphere of reality, whose boundary I never before saw you cross by a single inch. Whether this occurred unconsciously to you in an hour of mental ecstasy, 
or whether you felt that you still lacked the means to represent the divine, and therefore return to the older methods, I do not venture to decide. But at the first examination of your work I was conscious of one thing. It means for you a revolution, a rupture with your former aspirations, and as, I willingly confess it, you had been marvellously successful, it would have driven you, had your sight been spared, out of your own course and into the arms of the ancients, perhaps to your material profit, but scarcely the advantage of art, which needs a renewal of its vital energies. Let me assure you, my lord, Hermann protested, that had I remained able to continue to create, the success of the Demeter would never, never have rendered me faithless to the conviction and method of creation which I believed right, nay, before losing my sight, my whole soul was absorbed in a new work which would have permitted me to remain wholly and completely within the boundaries of reality. The Arachne? asked the king. Yes, my lord, cried Hermon ardently. With its completion I expected to render the greatest service, not only to myself, but to the cause of truth. Here Ptolemy interrupted with icy coldness. Yet you were certainly wrong, at least, if the Thracian Althea, who is the personification of falsehood, had continued to be the model. Then he changed his tone, and with the exclamation, You are protected from the needs of life, unless your rich uncle throws his property into the most insatiable of gulfs. May Straton's philosophy help you better to sustain your courage in the darkness which surrounds you than it has aided me to bear other trials. He left the room. Thus ended the artist's conversation with the king, from which Hermon had expected such great results, and, deeply agitated, he ordered the driver of his horses to take him to Daphne. She was the only person to whom he could confide what disappointment this interview had cost him. Others had previously reproached him, as the king had just done, with having, in the Demeter, become faithless to his artistic past. How false and foolish this was! Many a remark from the critics would have been better suited to Myrtilus's work than to his. Yet his fear in tennis had not been true. Only Daphne's sweet face did not suit his more vigorous method of emphasizing distinctions. What to many-hued chameleon was the verdict upon works of plastic art? Once, on his return to the capital, thousands had united in the same one, and now how widely they differed again. His earlier works, which were now lauded to the skies, had formerly invited censure in vehement attacks. What would he not have given for the possibility of seeing his admired work once more? As his way led past the Temple of Demeter, he stopped near it and was guided to the sanctuary. It was filled with worshippers, and when, in his resolute manner, he told the curator and the officiating priest that he wished to enter the cella and asked for a ladder to feel the goddess, he was most positively refused. What he requested seemed a profanation of the sacred image, and it would not do to disturb the devout throng. His desire to lower the pedestal could not be gratified. The high priest who came forward upheld his subordinates and, after a short dispute, Hermon left the sanctuary with his wish unfulfilled. Never had he so keenly lamented his lost vision as during the remainder of the drive, and when Daphne received him he described with passionate lamentation how terribly blindness embittered his life, and declared himself ready to submit to the severest suffering to regain his sight. She earnestly entreated him to apply to the great physician Erasistratus again, and Hermon willingly consented. 
He had promised to attend a banquet given that day by the wealthy ship-owner Archon. The feast lasted until early morning, but toward noon Hermon again appeared in his uncle's house and met Daphne full of joyous confidence, as if he were completely transformed. While at Archon's table, he had determined to place his curve in the hands of higher powers. This was the will of fate, for the guest whose cushion he shared was Silenus, the host's son, and the first thing he learned from him was the news that he was going the next day, with several friends, to the oracle of Ammon in the Libyan desert, to ask it what should be done for his mother, who had been for several years an invalid whom no physician could help. He had heard from many quarters that the council of the god, who had greeted Alexander the Great as his son, was infallible. Then Hermon had been most urgently pressed by the young man to accompany him. Every comfort would be provided. One of his father's fine ships would convey them to Paratonium, where tents, saddle horses, and guides for the short land journey would be ready. So he had promised to go with Silenus. Perhaps the god would show the blind man the right path to recovery. He would always be able to call the skill of the Alexandrian leeches to his aid. Soon after Hermod went on board Archon's splendidly equipped vessel and, instead of a tiresome journey, began a new and riotous period of festivity. Lavish provision had been made for gay companions of both sexes. Merry entertainment by means of dancing, music, and song, well-filled dishes and mixing vessels, and life during the ride through the coast and desert regions was not less jovial and luxurious than on a ship. It seemed to the blind man like one vast banquet in the dark, interrupted only by sleep. The hope of counsel from the gods cheered the depressed mood which had weighed upon him for several weeks, and rich young Silenus praised the lucky fate which had enabled him to find a traveling companion, whose intellect and wit charmed him and the others, and often detained them over the wine until late into the night. Here, too, Hermon felt himself the most distinguished person, the animating and attracting power, until it was said that the voyage was over, and the company pitched their tents in the famous oasis near the temple of Amon. The musicians and dancers, with due regard to propriety, had been left behind in the seaport of Paritonium. Yet the young travellers were sufficiently gay, while Silenus and Hermon waited for admission to the place of the oracle. A week after their arrival it was open to them, yet the words repeated to them by the priest satisfied neither Hermon nor Archon's son, for the oracle advised the latter to bring his mother herself to the oasis by the land road if she earnestly desired recovery, while to Hermon was shouted the ambiguous saying, Only night and darkness spring from the rang marsh of pleasure. Morning and day rise brightly from the starving sand. Could Silenus's mother, who was unable to move, endure the desert journey? And what was the meaning of the sand, from which morning and day, which were probably the fresh enjoyment of the light, were to rise for Hermon? The sentence of the oracle weighed heavily upon him, as well as on Archon's son, who loved his mother, and the homeward journey became to the blind man by no means a cheerful, but rather a very troubled dream. Thoughtful, very disturbed, dissatisfied with himself, and resolved to turn his back upon the dreary life of pleasure which for so long a time had allowed him no rest, and now disgusted him, he kept aloof from his travelling companions, and rejoiced when, at Alexandria, 
he was led ashore in the arbors of Eunostus. End of Book 2, Chapter 6 Recording by Nastasia S.